Chapter Seventeen of the Gold Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Seventeen, in a Subterranean World. When Mukoki and Wabigawan returned half an hour later, the hot stone biscuits were still unbaked. The fire was only a bed of coals. Beside it sat Rod the strange fish upon the ground at his feet. Before Mukoki had thrown down the pack of meat which he was carrying, he was showing them this fish. Quickly he related what had happened. He added to this some of the things which he had thought while sitting by the fire. The chief of these things were that just behind the cataract was the entrance to a great cavern, and that in this cavern they would not only find John Ball, but also the rich storehouse of that treasure of which they had discovered a part in the pool. And as the night lengthened, there was little talk about the gold and much about John Ball. Again and again Rod described the madman's visit, the trembling, pleading voice, the offering of the fish, the eager glow that had come into the wild eyes when he talked to him and called him by name. Even Mukoki's stoic heart was struck by the deep pathos of it all. The mad hunter no longer carried his gun. He no longer sought their lives. In his crazed brain something new and wonderful was at work, something that drew him to them, with the half-fear of an animal, and yet with growing trust. He was pleading for their companionship, their friendship, and deep down in his heart Rod felt that the spark of sanity was not completely gone from John Ball. When the three adventurers retired to their blankets in the cedar shelter, it was not the thought of gold that quickened their blood in anticipation of the morning. The passing of an age would not dull the luster of what they had come to seek. It would wait for them. The greatest of all things, the sympathy of man for man, had stilled that other passion in them. John Ball's salvation, and not more gold, was the day's work ahead of them now. With the dawn they were up, and by the time it was light enough to see, they were ready for the exploration of whatever was hidden behind the fall. In a rubber blanket Wabigawan wrapped a rifle and half a dozen pine torches. Mukoki carried a quantity of cooked meat. Standing on the edge of the pool, Rod pointed into the falling torrent. "'He dived straight under,' he said. "'The opening to the cavern is directly behind the chute of falling water.' Wabi placed his hat and coat upon a rock. "'I'll try it first. Wait until I come back,' he said. Without another word, he plunged into the pool. Minute after minute passed, and he did not reappear." Rod was conscious of a nervous chill creeping into his blood. But Mukoki was chuckling confidently. "'Found him,' he replied in response to the white man's inquiring look. As he spoke, Wabigawan came up out of the pool like a great fish. Rod helped him upon the rocks. "'We're two bright ones, we are, Muki,' he exclaimed as soon as he gained his breath. Just behind the fall I ran up against the wall of rock we found when we were hunting for John Ball, stood on my feet, and—he swung his arms suggestively. 
There I was, head and shoulders out of water, looking into a hole as big as a house. "'Dive easy,' warned the old pathfinder, turning to Rod. "'Bump head on rock, swoosh!' "'We won't have to dive,' continued Wabi. "'The water directly under the fall of the stream isn't more than four feet deep. "'If we wade into it from over there, we can make it easy.' "'Taking his waterproof bundle, the young Indian slipped into the pool "'close up against the wall of rock that formed the foundation of the upper chasm "'and plunged straight into the tumbling cataract. "'Mukoki followed close behind, and preparing himself with a long breath, "'Rod hurried into this new experience.' For a moment he was conscious of a smothering weight upon him, and a thunderous roaring in his ears, and he was borne irresistibly down. There was still air in his lungs when he found himself safely through the deluge, so he knew that its passage had only taken him only a brief but thrilling instant. For a time he could see nothing. Then he made out a dark form drawing itself up out of the water. Beyond that there lay a chaos of midnight blackness, and he knew that his eyes were staring into the depths of a great cavern. Gripping the edge of the rock ledge, he dragged himself up as both Wabigoon and Mukoki had done, and found his feet upon a soft floor of sand. Suddenly he felt a hand clutch his arm. A half-shout, rising faintly above the wash of the cataract, sounded in his ear. Look! He wiped the water from his eyes and gazed ahead of him. For a moment he saw nothing. Then, so faintly that at first it appeared no larger than a star, he caught the faint glimmer of a light. As he looked it became more and more distinct, and to his astonishment he saw that it was slowly rising, like a huge will-o'-the-wisp that had suddenly risen from the floor of the cavern to float off into the utter blackness of space above. And even as he stared, gripping Wabi's arm in his excitement, the strange light began to descend, and quickly disappeared. The two boys saw Mukoki slip off into the gloom, and without questioning his motive they followed close behind. As they progressed, the sound of the fall came more and more faintly to their ears. A blackness deeper than the gloom of the darkest night environed them, and the three now held to one another's arms. Rod understood why his companions lighted no torches. Somewhere ahead of them was another light carried by the mad hunter. His blood thrilled with excitement. Where would John Ball lead them? Suddenly he became conscious that they were no longer walking on a level floor of sand, but that they were ascending, as the light had done. Mukoki stopped, and for a full minute they stood and listened. The tumult of the fall came to them in a far, subdued murmur. Beyond that there was not the breath of a sound in the strange world of gloom about them. They were about to start on again when something held them, a whispering, sobbing echo, and Rod's heart seemed to stop its beating. It died away slowly, and a weird stillness fell after it. Then came a low, moaning cry, a cry that was human in its agony, and yet which had in it something so near the savage that even Wabigawan found himself trembling 
as he strained in futile effort to pierce the impenetrable gloom ahead. Before the cry had lost itself in the distances of the cavern, Mukoki was leading them on again. Step by step they followed in the path taken by the strange light. Rod knew that they were climbing a hill of sand, and that just beyond it they would see the light again, but he was not prepared for the startling suddenness with which the next change came. As if a black curtain had dropped from before their eyes, the three adventurers beheld a scene that halted them in their tracks. A hundred paces away, a huge pitch-pine torch a yard in length was burning in the sand, and crouching in the red glow of this, his arms stretched out as if in the supplication of a strange prayer, was John Ball. Just beyond him was the gleam of water, inky black in the weird flickerings of the torch, and toward this John Ball reached out in his grief. His voice came up softly to the three watchers now, so low that even in the vast silence of the cavern it could barely be heard. To Roderick Drew it was as if the strange creature below him was sobbing like a heartbroken child, and he whispered in Wabigawan's ear. Then, foot by foot, so gently that his moccasined feet made no sound, he approached the madman. Halfway to him he paused. "'Hello, John Ball,' he called softly. The faint light of the torch was falling upon him, and he advanced another step. The murmuring of the wild man ceased, but he made no movement. He still knelt in his rigid posture, his arms stretched toward the black chaos beyond him. Rod came very close to him before he spoke again. "'Is that you, John Ball?' Slowly the kneeling figure turned, and once more Rod saw in those wild eyes, gleaming brightly now in the torchlight, the softer, thrilling glow of recognition and returning reason. He reached out his own arms and advanced boldly, calling John Ball's name, and the madman made no retreat but crouched lower in the sand, strange, soft sounds again falling from his lips. Rod had come within half a dozen feet of him when he sprang up with the quickness of a cat and with a wailing cry plunged waist-deep into the water. With his arms stretched entreatingly into the mysterious world beyond the torchlight, he turned his face to the white youth, and Rod knew that he was trying as best he could to tell him something. "'What is it, John Ball?' He went to the edge of the black water and waded out until it rose to his knees, his eyes staring into the blackness. "'What is it?' He, too, pointed with one arm, and the madman gave an excited gesture. Then he placed his hands funnel-shaped to his mouth, as Rod had often seen Wabi and Mukoki do when calling Moose, and there burst from him a far-reaching cry and Rod's heart gave a sudden bound as he listened, for the cry was that of a woman's name. Dolores! Dolores! The cry died away in distant murmuring echoes, and with an answering cry Rod shouted forth the name which he fancied John Ball had spoken. Dolores! 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 
there came a sudden leaping plunge, and John Ball was at his feet, clasping him about the knees, and sobbing again and again that name, Dolores. Rod put his arms about the old man's shoulders, and the gray, shaggy head fell against him. The sobbing voice grew lower, the weight of the head greater, and after a little Rod called loudly for Mukoki and Wabigawan, for there was no longer movement or sound from the form at his feet, and he knew that something had happened to John Ball. The two Indians were quickly at his side, and together they carried the unconscious form of Ball within the circle of torchlight. The old man's eyes were closed, his claw-like fingers were clenched fiercely upon his breast, and not until Mukoki placed a hand over his heart did the three know that he was still breathing. "'Now is our time to get him to camp,' said Wabi. "'Lead the way with the torch, Rod.' There was not much weight to John Ball, and the two Indians carried him easily. At the fall the rubber blanket was wound about his head, and the adventurers plunged under the cataract with their burden. It was an hour after that before the old man opened his eyes again. Rod was close beside him, and for a full minute the mad hunter gazed up into his face. Then once more he sank off into that strange unconsciousness which had overcome him in the cavern. Rod rose white-faced and turned to Mukoki and Wabigawan. "'I'm afraid he's dying,' he said. The Indians made no answer. For several minutes the three sat silently about John Ball, watching for signs of returning consciousness. At last Mukoki roused himself to take a pot of soup from the fire. The movement seemed to stir John Ball into life, and Rod was at his side again, holding a cup of water to his lips. After a little he helped the old man to sit up, and a spoonful at a time the warm soup was fed to him. Through the whole of that day he returned to consciousness only for brief intervals, lapsing back into a death-like sleep after each awakening. During one of these periods of unconsciousness Wabi cut short the tangled beard and hair, and for the first time they saw in all its emaciation the thin, ghastly face of the man who, half a century before, had drawn the map that led them to the gold. There was little change in his condition during the night that followed, except that now and then he muttered incoherently, and at these times Rod always caught in his ravings the name that he had heard in the cavern. The next day there was no change, and there was still none on the third. Even Mukoki, who had tried every expedient of wilderness craft in nursing, gave up in despair. So far as they could see, John Ball had no fever. Yet three-quarters of the time he lay as if dead. Nothing but soup could be forced between his lips. On the second day Wabi revisited the subterranean world beyond the cataract. When he came back, he had discovered the secret of the treasure in the pool. The gold came from the cavern. The soft sand through which they had followed the strange light was rich in dust and nuggets. During the floods of spring water came into the cavern from somewhere, and flowing for a brief space out through the mouth of the cave, 
brought with it the precious burden of treasure-laden sand which was dumped into the pool. The constant wash of the cataract had caused most of the sand to overflow into the running stream, but the heavier gold dust and nuggets remained in the trap into which they had fallen. But the joy that came of this discovery was subdued by thoughts of John Ball. The gold meant everything to Rod, the realization of his hopes and ambitions, and he knew that it meant everything to his mother, and to all those who belonged to Mukoki and Wabigawan. But the gold could wait. They had already accumulated a small fortune, and they could return for the rest a little later. At present they must do something for John Ball, the man to whom they were indebted for all that they had found, and to whom the treasure really belonged. On the third day Rod laid his plans before Wabi and Mukoki. "'We must take John Ball back to the post as quickly as we can,' he said. "'It is our only chance of saving him. "'If we start now, while the water in the creek is deep enough to float our canoe, "'we can make Wabinosh House in ten or fifteen days. "'It will be impossible to paddle against the swift current,' said Wabi. "'That is true. "'But we can put John Ball into the canoe and tow him upstream.' It will be a long wade and hard work, but... He looked at Wabi in silence, then added, Do we want John Ball to live, or do we want him to die? If I thought he would live, I would wade a thousand miles to save him, rejoined the young Indian. It means little to us but work. We know where the rest of the gold is and can return to it within a few weeks. If there had been a doubt in the boys' minds as to the right course to pursue, John Ball settled it himself that very afternoon. He awakened from an unusually long stupor. His eyes were burning with a new light, and as Rod bent over him, he whispered softly but distinctly, "'Dolores! Dolores! Where is Dolores?' "'Who is Dolores, John Ball?' whispered the white youth, his heart thumping wildly. "'Who is Dolores?' Ball drew up one of his emaciated hands and clasped it to his head, and a sobbing moan fell from his lips. Then, after a moment, he repeated as though to himself, "'Dolores! Dolores! Who is Dolores?' The Indians had come near and heard, but John Ball said no more. He swallowed a few spoonfuls of soup and fell again into his death-like trance. "'Who is Dolores?' repeated Wabigawan, his face whitening as he looked at Rod. "'Is there somebody else in the cavern?' "'He is talking of someone whom he probably knew forty or fifty years ago,' replied Rod. But his own face was white. He stared hard at Wabigawan, and a strange look came into Mukoki's face. Dolores, he mused, without taking his eyes from Wabi, it's a woman's name, or a girl's name. We must save John Ball. We must start for Wabinosh House, now. While he's unconscious, we can tie the rope about him and hoist him into the upper chasm, quickly added Wabigawan. 
Mookie, get to work. We move this minute. It was still two hours before dusk, and now that they had determined on returning to Wabinosh House, the adventurers lost no time in getting under way. Wabi climbed the rope that was suspended from the upper chasm, and that part of their equipment which it was necessary to take back with them was hoisted up by him. Mukoki sheltered the rest in the old cabin. John Ball was drawn up last. For an hour after that, until the gray shadows of night began settling about them, the three waded up the shallow stream, pulling the canoe and its unconscious burden after them. That night the madman was not left unwatched for a minute. Mukoki sat beside him until eleven o'clock. Then Wabi took his turn. A little after midnight, Rod was aroused by being violently pulled from his bed of balsam boughs. "'For the love of heaven, get up!' whispered the young Indian. "'He's talking, Rod. He's talking about Dolores, and about some kind of a great beast that's bigger than anything that ever lived up here. Listen!' The madman was moaning softly. "'I've killed it, Dolores. I've killed it, killed it. Where is Dolores? Where is—' There came a deep sigh, and John Ball was quiet. "'Killed what?' panted Rod, his heart thumping until it choked him. "'The beast, whatever it was,' whispered Wabi. "'Rod, something terrible happened in that cavern.' We don't know the whole story. The Frenchmen who killed themselves for possession of the birch-bark map played only a small part in it. The greater part was played by John Ball and Dolores. For a long time the two listened, but the old man made no sound or movement. "'Better go back to bed,' said Wabi. "'I thought if he was going to keep it up you would like to hear. I'll call you at two. But Rod could not sleep. For a long time he lay awake thinking of John Ball and his strange ravings. Who was Dolores? What terrible tragedy had that black world under the mountains some time beheld? Despite his better reason, an indefinable sensation of uneasiness possessed him as the madman sobbing out of the woman's name recurred to him. He spoke nothing of this to Wabi when he relieved him, and he said nothing of it during the days that followed. They were days of unending toil, of fierce effort to beat out death in the race to Wabinosh House. For it seemed that the end of time was very near for John Ball. On the fourth day his thin cheeks showed signs of fever, and on the fifth he was tossing in delirium. The race now continued by night as well as by day, only an hour or two of rest being snatched at a time. During these days John Ball babbled ceaselessly of Dolores, and great beasts, and the endless cavern, and now the beasts began taking the form of strange people whose eyes gleamed from out of masses of fur, and who had hands, and flung spears. On the eighth day the madman sank back into his old lethargy. On the fourth day after that the three adventurers, worn and exhausted, reached the shores of Lake Nipigon. 
Thirty miles across the lake was Wabinosh House, and it was decided that Mukoki and Rod should leave for assistance while Wabigawan remained with John Ball. The two rolled themselves in their blankets immediately after supper, and after three hours' sleep were awakened by the young Indian. All that night they paddled with only occasional moments of rest. The sun was just rising over the forests when they grounded their canoe close to the post. As Rod sprang ashore, he saw a figure walk slowly out from the edge of the forest, an eighth of a mile away. Even at that distance he recognized Minnetaki. He looked at the sharp-eyed Mukoki. He, too, had seen and recognized the girl. "'Muki, I'm going along in the edge of the woods and give her a surprise,' said Rod courageously. "'Will you wait here?' Mukoki grinned a nodding assent, and the youth darted into the edge of the forest. He was breathless when he came up a hundred yards behind the girl, screened from view by the trees. Softly he whistled. It was a signal that Minnetaki had taught him on his first trip into the north, and he knew of only two who used it in all that north land, and those two were the Indian maiden and himself. The girl turned as she heard the trilling note, and Rod drew himself farther back. He whistled again, more loudly than before, and Minnetaki came hesitatingly toward the forest's edge. And when he whistled a third time, there came a timid response from her, as if she recognized and yet doubted the notes that floated to her from the shadows of the balsams. Again Rod whistled, laughing as he drew a little farther back, and again Minnetaki answered, peering in among the trees. He saw the wondering, half-expectant glow in her eyes, and suddenly crying out her name, he sprang from his concealment. With a little cry of joy, and with hands outstretched, Minnetaki ran to meet him. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline